the scripture lesson from the New Testament comes from the first chapter in Acts. Let us listen for the word of the Lord. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom of Israel? He replied, It is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of sight. While he was going and they were gazing up towards heaven, Suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up to heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you in heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered the city, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. All these were constantly devoting themselves to prayer, together with certain women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, as well as his brothers. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This story is called the Ascension in the church calendar year. It's the day of Ascension where we remember Jesus being lifted up, riding clouds, as the psalmist said. And there are many artists throughout time have tried to depict this Ascension from Raphael to even Salvador Dali. This story stands out, though. It doesn't read like the more narrative ones that we are used to reading in the Gospels, where you can flip through them and recognize some of the pieces of our own everyday life, the elements of meals and friendships and long journeys, unexpected companions, even injustice and forgiveness are in those other scripture stories. And you can pick up those stories and kind of place them next to our own lives, watching them snap into place with insight and lessons. But then you get a story like Easter's resurrection, or today's ascension, or even next week's Pentecost, and the idea of logical application completely unravels. I do not know how to preach about Jesus going up on a cloud, Every generation or so, Hollywood gives it another go. Because on first look, the psalm that we heard and Acts 1 do seem ready for cinematic treatment. God and Jesus ride on the clouds, the earth quakes, heavens pour down rain at the presence of God. And then two men in white show up out of nowhere, cueing the perfect moment for the disciples to do a Monty Python-esque double take. There's a lot of drama and in this text, and things that we might not recognize from our own life without the help of smoke and mirrors. So what do we do with this text? What now in our reading? I believe often we have one of three reactions. First, we might laugh and think, this is silly. We don't have time for this. This is clearly Luke, the author of Acts, taking poetic license, getting carried away. 
He paints in broad strokes and leaves logic far behind. We don't actually need to spend another moment thinking about this cloud business. We are ready to move on to the next thing. This reaction justifies our sense of important busyness. We can chuckle and see the Bible as some irrelevant fiction, only a good story not worth actually reading carefully. And so we get along with our day, unchanged, unmoved, congratulating ourselves on not wasting our time. A second reaction to this story is that we might admit our confusion and then fiercely begin to try and figure this whole thing out. We fixate on the how and the where of this cloud ascension and when it will happen again. When will Christ come precisely? We decide that we will figure out the details of this thing no matter what it takes. The fundamentalist doomsday preppers that Ellick talked about the other week would fall into this reactionary camp. And interestingly, they'd be here alongside certain agnostic scholars like Bart Ehrman, intelligent people who are determined to make sense of this whole scripture thing and not leave one shred of story to mystery or unknowability. They take the scripture, wrestle it to the ground, and demand answers. What happened exactly? When? How? What did Jesus mean precisely? When is that time that Christ will come again? Is it now? Is it now? Is it now? These two reactions are so common in our world. We are busy. We don't want to waste time on a story that doesn't make sense. And we are intelligent. We can figure this thing out if we just ask the right questions and believe the right things. Yet there is a third reaction in the text. And it is what the disciples do. They wander away, back to Jerusalem, back to that upper room, back together as a group. What now? They sit and they pray. This is not very Hollywood ready. Prayer in an upper room with a bunch of unknown people is not the stuff with which we can cinematically, dramatically depict the glory of God. Reading these verses, we do see some names that we recognize, but there are others that are simply reserved for Bible trivia only. Mary, Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, and a few other women and men sprinkled in who are not named but are acknowledged for their presence. But that's all we get. An upper room and a gathering of tired, probably smelly, unwealthy, unknown disciples. Still, if we sit a little longer and let our imagination wander, we can remember we do have a few more details about these characters listed here. We know just enough about them to know they come with some strong personalities. So if we do start to picture what it might have looked like for a group of people to sit in the same room and wonder what was happening next and trying to decide what to do and talking and remembering how Jesus just went the way of Elijah surrounded by clouds, if we picture this, it's hard to imagine this situation leading to a calm conversation or a picture-perfect tableau of placid agreement. After all, these scriptures deal with human beings, and all we have to do is look around at our own life and congregation, 
to realize that being a follower of Jesus does not always mean that everyone is calm, cheerful, and getting along swimmingly. In this upper room, we can perhaps picture the steady strength of Mary, the earnest impulsivity of Peter, and the persistent righteousness of James. And if we let our imaginations go, we might overhear the accountant Matthew giving the poet John a talking to about pulling his fair share and not going off wandering, coming up with beautiful statements of belief. Or we might see Simon the Zealot ready to leap into action while Thomas wants to take a few more moments to think about this whole thing. And then there's always Mary trying to get a word in edgewise and getting a bit frustrated that no one is listening to her. So the third reaction to this story is for a bunch of diverse people to sit, talk, and pray. This seems like a big mistake. Who came up with such a crazy idea? Indeed, often we want to believe that we on our own can discern God's call for our lives. We don't want to have to listen to anyone else. That takes time and energy. So when God is speaking in lofty language of clouds and storms, It is up to us to determine what needs to be done. Something big has happened. We cannot explain it. Jesus is gone, so it's up to us now. But let us remember, disciples do not gather in an upper room despite their differences. They gather because of them. They, with all of their strengths and weaknesses, gather to pray together and discern the next step for Christ's work on earth. They do this because Jesus himself called them together. Jesus called people. People in all their differences, people in all their brokenness, people in all of their beauty. Yes, poetic language enwraps God in our psalm today, and similarly, a cloud takes Jesus out of sight, and we can easily focus on these lofty details. But let us not so much focus on these statements that we miss the words that God is the father of orphans and protectors of widows, gives the desolate a home, provides for the needy, and leads prisoners to prosperity, as the psalmist said. And let us not forget that Jesus, in all of his language and actions, worked in very concrete terms, using wheat, seeds, birds, water, bread, vines, trees, money, and other substantial, tangible elements in order to reveal God's love to this world. This Holy Spirit does not work in the abstract. The Spirit works in the lives of those widows, orphans, prisoners, The Spirit works in the lives of James, John, Bartholomew, Mary, Dot, Cam, Anna, Harlan, and Anne. When we look closely, we cannot write off this scripture as an irrelevant story, failing our own rules of logic and efficiency. Instead, we see this story as a testament to the way Christ is still present in the world, even when we cannot see him anymore. What now? Now we look around for evidence, and it might surprise us where we find it. I want to point out a movie that I saw this past week called Belle. This movie is beautiful, and it tells the fascinating true story of Dido Elizabeth Bell Lindsay, a girl born to a British sea admiral and an African slave in the late 18th century. Upon learning about her birth and her mother's death, 
her father, Admiral Lindsay, did a remarkable thing. He claimed paternity of the child, took her back to his home in Britain, and let her be raised alongside her cousin at the home of his uncle, Lord Murray. Lindsay even gave Dido his own last name. And of course, historically, having children with slaves was not unheard of, but the claiming of paternity and gathering them into the family was. Lindsay's actions stand out. And we don't know much about Dido Bell, but this movie depicts how an intelligent woman, a biracial female being raised in an aristocratic, admired family, forces people to break and remake their own rules about money, class, marriage, color, and love. In one particular scene, Dido is talking with her uncle. He is the chief justice to the courts and is trying a particularly controversial case. Dido is asking about the particularities of the law and how he will rule on this case about against, that pits slave traders against insurance companies. Lord Murray discusses his work of interpretation. He explains the methodical process and how he seeks to uphold law whenever possible, pre-existing law. And he does say to his niece, whom he seems to love as a daughter, you are cherished. I've enabled every convention so that you might know exactly where you fit in society. Dido turns to him and says with passion, you are also courageous. You break every rule when it matters. I am the evidence. I am the evidence. Bell speaks these words about a particular moment in time, yet we can speak these words whenever we ask what Christ is doing in our lives today. Christ is enabling and subverting every demeaning aspect of this world to reveal to us that we are cherished we are loved. Christ is making and breaking every rule to reveal God's new, the good news of God's grace to us. We are the evidence. When we read the ascension story, let us not laugh it off as irrelevant or fixate on proving when Christ is coming again. Instead, let us read this story and remember Christ tells us to receive the Holy Spirit and bear witness to it. Let us look around and see the evidence of how Christ is present with us now. We don't know when Christ is coming again in full glory, but we do know what he did while he was here. We are the evidence of that. Sometimes different people with different economic backgrounds and political beliefs are drawn together for no logical reason. We are the evidence of that. Sometimes people give up a nice, quiet, self-centered Sunday morning to come downtown, to sit, sing, pass the peace, pray together. We are the evidence of that. Sometimes people spend their Monday mornings helping at walk-in or their Tuesday evenings staying with Caritas or their Sunday afternoons volunteering at a downtown service festival. We are the evidence of that. Sometimes we clash with one another and need to remind ourselves that Christ really does love that person across the room as much as he loves us. We are the evidence of that. And sometimes we fail and get frustrated by our own flaws and must remind ourselves that Christ really does love us as much as he seems to love that person across the room. 
We are the evidence of that. We are not the evidence of perfection, success, or efficiency. We are the evidence of Christ's love. And the disciples in this story are the evidence as well. They reveal how belief in this Jesus drew together people from different genders, personalities, politics, and regions. This, this belief helped them walk long, dusty roads to this great city of Jerusalem and then gather in an upper room, embracing their differences, even if for a moment, and beginning the slow, very slow work of building the church. The world is a fractured place, and so many voices we hear on the TV, radio, or even in our own denomination ask us to fear division and abolish all differences. This scripture is reminding us that when Christ leaves earth, we are left with the grace of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, and each other. We are left to live with the other people whom Christ loves even now. And it is hard to get along with others. And yet we, as the disciples, are not called to fear difference, but instead to look for the ways that we are united, even with our various particularities. We are called to seek unity amidst the chaos of diversity. And that is why we do things like share communion, which we will do in a few moments where we remember that Christ works through the tangible stuff of bread and wine and draws us together again and again, even when we'd rather not pass the bread to that person in the pew or rather not remember again that we are broken. And next week we'll celebrate Pentecost, again hearing a story that defies logic. And in the whirlwind, we will remember that these voices and tongues, personalities and people are the evidence of Christ's hands and feet in the world. Orphans and widows, prisoners and judges, black and white and in between, we are evidence that Christ does not ask us to figure out how to explain everything logically. Christ asks us to witness constantly to gather together and remind ourselves that we are connected by a love that is deeper than our own understanding. I've quoted the Lutheran pastor Nadia Boltz-Weber before, and I probably will again. Unlike her, I've never been tattooed or addicted to drugs or a stand-up comedian or six feet tall, although I do hold out hope of that. <laughs> However, I believe she speaks wisdom, and I wanted to share a few of her words with you. She says that as soon as people express interest in joining the church, she wants to give them a reality check. She reminds them that the church they will disappoint them because it is full of human beings. She says, I am not idealistic about any kind of human project. I try and always keep that in check. I am completely idealistic about God's ability to redeem our stuff and our mistakes. But I think if we aren't open about the fact that we've made mistakes— that can be a barrier to experiencing forgiveness and grace and redemption. So what I say to people, literally say to people at our Welcome to Church brunch is, I'm glad you're here, but at some point, I will disappoint you or the church will let you down. And I want you to decide on this side of that happening if you will stick around after it happens. Because if you leave, you will miss the way that God's grace comes in and fills the cracks of our brokenness. And it's too beautiful to miss. Don't miss it. A cloud surrounds Christ and we are left here on earth. 
So what now? Will we walk away with a chuckle, glad that we escaped that whole thing? Will we sit on our own and try to figure this thing out for ourselves? Or will we gather together and with laughter, tears, arguments, celebrations, communion, songs, prayers, and above all, love, begin to become the evidence of Christ on earth? Let us pray. Lord, we are here now, and you are here with us in ways that we cannot fully explain or understand. Be with us as we go out into the world seeking you, finding you, and discovering again how you have called us to serve and love one another. In your holy name we pray. Amen.